so if you would open with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2, Psalm chapter 2, and Romans chapter 13. Psalm chapter 2 and Romans chapter 13. We're going to be looking at a lot of scripture today, so I encourage you to keep your Bible handy. Uh, but primarily, I'll be asking you to turn to passages in the Psalms and in Romans. Uh, we're living in historic days, historic times. Uh, if you hadn't noticed that over the last uh, two years, uh, hopefully over the last uh, two days, you recognize that uh, history is being made in the times and the days in which we are living in. For nearly 50 years, God's people, Christians in this land, have been praying and asking God for justice for the unborn, the preborn child. And this last Friday, God answered our prayers. Amen. Now, uh, I had another message planned for us today uh, to continue our, our, our summer series looking at, through, at some of the uh, cultural issues of the day. Um, but when the decision came out Friday and I started to see some of the response that was happening, not just in the culture, but also in, in uh, the, the Christian community. I put another message together that I was going to bring later in the series, but we're bumping it up to today. And I, I want to help serve you as, as a believer in Christ uh, for to how to process uh, what has happened. And the... There seems to be some confusion over uh, some issues regarding the relationship between the church and the state. And so we're going to examine that today. It's a big issue. We have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, like I said, I was going to bring this out later in the series, but because of where we are now, because we're all called to shine for Christ and to be witnesses for Christ, and because this is what everybody's talking about, how great would it be for us as God's people to be able to shine for him in the midst of our conversa conversations and not to be confused. Uh, God is not the author of confusion. And so there's a lot of confusion right now over the issue of imposing beliefs upon people. Imposing beliefs. And so a lot of the commentary uh, that... I have seen and, and that uh, Heather was showing to me as we were kind of glued to the outside world the last few days is uh, Christians who affirm that abortion is wrong, morally evil. And if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to uh, the message last week. I uh, gave a, a, the biblical uh, exposition on uh, abortion and uh, the uh, evidence that the Bible gives us that life begins at conception, that God cares about the unborn child, that God is the author and giver of life, and that they should be protected in the mother's womb according to the word of God. So if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. But what we've seen a lot is, and, and maybe you've seen something similar, yes, yes, as Christians we believe that abortion is, 
is wrong, that it should not happen, but we as Christians cannot impose our beliefs on other people. Have you heard anything like that the last few days? Um, in fact, that, that idea not only comes from people within the church, which we've seen, it not only comes from people, you know, the talking heads in the news, it even comes from the highest office in our land, as our president is a self-proclaimed Catholic, Roman Catholic, and the Roman Catholic position, thankfully, is very strong on the issue of life. And so he himself makes this argument that though I personally believe abortion is wrong, I believe that women should have the right to take the life of their unborn children. And so that, that idea is very much baked into the culture and the Christian culture. And I want to show you today why that is not the case. I want to help you understand that. And I want to help you see that no beliefs have been imposed upon anyone. And I want to help you as a believer to have a more fully formed uh, concept of the relationship between the church and the state, the relationship between the church and the state. Now, I have to admit to you that uh, up until March of 2020, I had not given a whole lot of uh, study to the issue of the church and the state uh, simply because it wasn't an issue so much. The state kind of just left the church alone and we, we just did our thing and they did their thing and we just kind of went along and there was no issues until March of 2020 and they said, hey, by the way, you can't have church anymore. And then all of a sudden I was very interested in the what the Bible has to say about the relationship between the church and the state. And so over the last two and a half years, uh, my understanding on this issue has, has, I wouldn't say evolved, I would say has become more solid and fully formed and fully orbed. And so that's what I hope to share with you today. So uh, let's pray and then we're going to jump right in and dig right in. Father, we thank you uh, for this time of worship that we've had together. Lord, the songs that we've sung already proclaim that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so, Lord, as we dig into the scripture today, help us to see that that is true, that that's not just a nice idea. That's not just something that we print on coffee mugs to make us feel good in the morning, but it is the actual reality that we live under every single day. And help us as people who believe you and believe your word to live that out in a way that is consistent with what your word has revealed to us. And Lord, help us as your people to not only be people of truth, but also of grace. And let us walk those two paths together of grace and truth and that we might win the world to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So uh, I asked you to open to Psalm chapter 2. I have five headings, five points that we're going to look at today. And we're going to look at different scriptures that help establish those. Uh, but the first is that there is only one sovereign. There's only one sovereign. And that sovereign individual is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one sovereign. There's only one who is autonomous. 
If you remember in our first, series, first message in the series, we, we looked at man's autonomy or living under God's authority. And what we saw and what we looked at and what we examined was that the idea that men have autonomy apart from God is an illusion. It's part of the deception that, that Eve bought into, that Adam and Eve bought into in the garden from Satan. There's only one who is sovereign. There's only one who is autonomous. There's only one who, who rules and reigns and has ultimate authority, and that is Jesus Christ the Lord. He himself declared that in his final words, his final speech before he ascended into heaven. After living a life without sin, after going to the cross and paying the price for sinners, after dying and shedding his blood, after raising from the dead in victory over Satan and sin and hell, before he ascended to the right hand of God, he proclaimed all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say all authority will be given to me when I return one day. He didn't say all authority or some authority has been given to me in the realm of, of the, the church, in the realm of, of spiritual matters. He didn't say all authority in heaven has been given to me. No, Jesus said all authority in heaven up there and on earth down here has been given unto him. Because of his work on the cross, defeating Satan. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus. And so I would submit to you that we as Christians who claim to follow Christ have to believe those words. And so we believe as Christians that there is only one sovereign, Jesus Christ the Lord. We saw this in Philippians chapter 2 where it talks about Christ's humiliation. That he, he came in the form of humanity, that he left glory and, and came to the earth. That he submitted himself to the will of the Father, even unto death and even death on the cross. But then it goes on to say that because of that, therefore God has highly exalted him. Highly exalted him. Seated him on a throne above all principalities, above all rulers, above every magistrate, over every governor, over every court. Jesus reigns supreme highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord. This is firmly established in the fact that he is the creator we looked at that a few weeks ago, the issue of origins. We didn't evolve from nothing. We were not just, you know, magic space dust that, that somehow turned into human beings with consciousness. And No, we, we bear the image of God. Jesus is the creator. He rules over his creation. His sovereignty as creator is absolute and constant. So let's look at some passages of scripture. Uh, uh, Psalm chapter 2 this morning. We looked at this in the first message, but I have to highlight it for you again. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So here it says that God is concerned with the nations of the world. That that it's not just Israel that God's concerned about. It's not just the church that God is concerned about. No, it is the nations of the world. This is why Jesus, after he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me, he said what? Go therefore and make disciples of what? All nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to do what? Obey all that I have commanded. And lo, I am with you always to the ends of the age. The nations belong to Jesus Christ. Now the kings of the earth, the rulers of the earth, the governors, the presidents, the courts, the kings, they don't think so. They want to be autonomous. They want to be sovereign. And so they take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. That's the father and the son. The, the, the anointed, the Messiah, the, the Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us not live under God's law, God's rule, and God's reign. We will be a law unto ourselves. And then we saw, what, what does God do to that idea? What does he think about that? He thinks it's hilarious. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. He he scoffs at the idea. He mocks the idea that kings could establish their own authority apart from God. And then it says he will speak to them in his wrath. He brings judgment upon the nations that do not submit to his lordship. And terrifies them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Christ reigns today. Seated on a throne. He is the descendant of David. He he rules and reigns as the Messiah. And he is seated in this throne, heavenly Zion, from his holy hill, seated on the throne of David. Verse 7, I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. This is the promise that the Father makes to the Son. All you need do, ask, and the nations will be yours. And the ends of the earth are your possession. You shall break them or rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings of the earth, rulers, governors, magistrates, presidents, judges, O kings of the earth, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing with trembling. What what is the message from God to everyone who is an authority today? It's that he is king and they are to serve him in their position of authority. That is God's word to the kings, to the rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. Pay homage to Christ. See Christ in his rightful place as king of kings and lord of lords. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
The scripture could not be more clear. It's not ambiguous. It's not confusing. Christ reigns. The nations are his. They belong to him. And the kings of the earth, the rulers of the earth, are called to submit to Christ. Flip over with me to Psalm 22. We're going to do a, a quick survey through Psalms here. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. Jesus quotes from uh, Psalm 22 on the cross, telling us, as he quotes Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That this psalm is having its full fulfillment in the work that Christ is doing on the cross. And this psalm, of, the, the, of this messianic psalm, it concludes, it, it comes to its crescendo in verse 27, so Psalm 22, 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. Do you see that this is present tense? Do you see that this is not declaring some future thing? That God reigns over the nations as King of kings and Lord of lords. And because this is a messianic psalm, it comes to its full fulfillment. We see it picture perfectly clear in the ministry and work of Christ. Christ is king over all the earth. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He rules over the nations today. Flip over with me to Psalm 47. We opened our service today with this psalm that was not planned. Well, God planned it, but I, we didn't plan it. Psalm 47, 7. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with the psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. God is king over all the earth. Amen? Are you convinced yet? Do you need more convincing or... Go, go to Psalm 90, I'll give you just a few more that, that show you this is not just some isolated idea. Psalm 93. Psalm 93, verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. He is robed... The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. God's rule is established in his creative order as creator over all the earth. It shall never be moved. Verse 2, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O oh Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. 
the, this word, this idea of floods is, is a, an Old Testament uh, way of talking about the nations of the world, especially the, the, the unbelieving Gentile nations that uh, would oppose Israel. And so he, he's talking about the nations that have rebelled against the Lord. Mightier, though, he says, than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waters and the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your name, O Lord, forevermore. Look at Psalm 94. The stretch between Psalm 93 and Psalm 99 are all about the rule and reign of God as king of the nations. Psalm 94 puts this into incredible perspective. It even speaks to some issues in our day today. Psalm 94, verse 1. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. Bring justice. He's calling for justice. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt themselves? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. Murder the fatherless. That's not describing abortion. It's, it's the taking of the unborn of those in our day who, most of them without fathers who would care for them. The, the wicked, this is what they do. And listen to what they say while they do it. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. God doesn't see this. God, God, there's, there is no God. God's not watching us. No one's ruling and reigning over us. I am my own God. I am my own sovereign. I am my own authority. God doesn't see. God is not viewing this. God's not going to judge us. Verse 8, understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who made the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. They're temporary. Look at verse 20. Can wicked rulers be aligned with you, allied with you, O God? Those who frame injustice by statute. Wow. But it, in, in call, establishing in law injustice. That's what he's talking about here. Unjust laws. Can they be aligned with God? No. They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness, the Lord our God will wipe them out. This is serious business. When we trifle with God Almighty, 
When we try and set ourselves up against God, against his law, against his Christ, as some sort of self-governing, autonomous people, we are in rebellion against God. We are not allied with God. And when we do that, what we have is not justice, but injustice. And it says that God will bring judgment on those who do this. Psalm 96.10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Psalm 97.1, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Psalm 99.1, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. Verse 2, he is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great name and awesome name. Holy is he. It seems to me, and I, I might be overstating my case a little bit, but it seems to me that God thinks he's in charge. It seems to me that God thinks he rules the nations. And it seems to me that if we are God's people and we follow Christ, that we should believe that as well. That we should believe that Christ truly does have all authority in heaven on earth. That he truly is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. There's only one sovereign. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. The buck stops with him. Now, I told you I had five points. Let's move on to the second one. The Lord Jesus, we're going to move more quickly now, but I really wanted to lay that as a foundation. The Lord Jesus has established... He is sovereign, and under his sovereign rule and reign, he has established three forms of government. In his word, through his word, God has established three forms of government. Now, my definition for a government is an institution established by God and endowed with limited authority in a specific sphere. A government is an institution established by God and endowed with limited authority under him in a specific sphere. And the three governments that we see clearly established in Scripture are, number one, the family. The family is a government. We see authority structure within the family. The government of the family. Secondly, we see the church. The church is a government established by God with specific authority in a specific sphere. And the third we see is what I'm calling the state. The state, the the natural government. So the family, the church, and the state. These institutions established by God and endowed with limited authority under his rule and reign. And so the family, the family unit is tasked with the job of the family. We are given as families, each individual family, the creation mandate. We see this at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. We see the creation mandate established again after the flood and after Noah leaves the ark. This creation mandate of having dominion, exercising God's authority as his image bearers, And multiplying and filling the earth with people who worship God. That is the creation mandate that has been tasked to the family. 
And so we are to live under God, fulfilling this mandate of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with those who bear the image of God. And we are to raise up our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, doing everything we can as parents, as fathers and mothers, to ensure that our children love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the job of the family. And the family, each family unit, is responsible to God for how they fulfill that mandate. Husbands, wives, children, you're all instructed in God's word how he expects you to operate in his role in the government of the family, under his rule and under his reign. The second is the church. We see the church clearly established by the Lord, And it is tasked with the responsibility of the Great Commission. Now, I've already quoted from that several times this morning. Matthew chapter 28. The church's responsibility is the Great Commission, which is the spreading of the gospel, taking this message of salvation to the nations of the world, calling them to repentance and faith in Christ, and then teaching the nations to obey the word of God. That is the Great Commission. The proclamation of the gospel and teaching the nations to obey the word of God. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. So the church is tasked with the responsibility of the great commission. Which brings us to the state. What is the job of the state? Well the responsibility of the state under God is to dispense with justice. The dispensing of justice is the job of the state. And so I invite you to go with me to Romans chapter 13. We'll see here clearly where the job of the state is clearly identified for us. Tasked with the responsibility of justice. Now we see in the scripture that... There is a separation of power that exists between these governments. It's not the church's job to do the state's job. It's not the state's job to do the family's job. It's not the family's job to do the church's job. They all have a specific lane that God has called them to run in. And when they do, under his authority, guess what flows? God's blessing. God's blessing flows to the church that will operate under the word of God, to the family that will operate under the word of God, and to the nation that will operate under the word of God. His blessing will flow. We see this separation of power that exists. We saw it in the Old Testament, that the Levitical priesthood, if you will, the church, those tasked with teaching the word of God and worship, They were separated from those who dispense with justice, the judges. Now we see there's two branches of government in Old Testament Israel. But there's not a third branch because there's no legislative branch. Because God was the lawgiver in Old Testament Israel. He gave his law. And in the New Testament, Jesus affirms the separation between the church and the state when he says this, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Recognizing that God has established both government 
and the church, both the state and the church, and also the family, as distinct uh, governments that have authority where God has established them to have authority. And so though the family, church, and state are separate, neither are, neither, none of them are sovereign unto themselves. That's what we have to understand. The state is not sovereign unto itself. It is under God. Every nation is under God. There is no area of life that is not directly under the authority of God. There's no secular safe space outside the lordship of Christ. You, you can't identify a, an autonomous zone and say, the, the Christ does not reign here. That's not the way it works. There are no autonomous zones apart from the lordship of Christ. The church, the family, and the state are to serve God. How? By obeying his word. By recognizing Jesus as Lord and Christ as King. Now, the question we have to ask is, do we believe that the nations are accountable to God? Do we believe that? Or do we think that they have power apart from God? What's interesting to me is that in the Old Testament... It's not just Israel that was accountable to God. Recorded in Scripture are God sending his prophets to other nations as well. Obadiah goes and prophesies to the nation of Edom. Isaiah and Ezekiel prophesied to Egypt. Jonah and Nahum prophesied to Nineveh. And that, that story is very familiar to us. Jonah had a little bit of a wet detour on his way to Nineveh. That was the nation of Assyria, the biggest nation on the planet at the time. And Jonah walks into the capital city of the biggest nation on the earth and he says to the king, repent and serve the Lord. It wasn't just Israel that was to serve God. All of the nations were to serve the Lord and Israel was to be a prototype, was to be an example to the nations of what it looks like when a nation serves God. And so God sent his messengers to the other nations and called them to repentance. Daniel prophesied in Babylon. Jeremiah was called a prophet to the nations, plural. God clearly believes he's the king of the nations. Do we believe that? What did the apostles believe? What did Jesus' messengers believe? Well, Romans 13. Let's look at the authority that God has given to the state. Let every person, verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Talking about the state. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Authority comes from God. Structure comes from God. We live in a culture today that wants to destroy every sort of structure. Every sort of... Uh, Authority structure. If, if there's any sort of uh, structure, it, it wants to, we want to flatten it out so that nobody has any authority at all. But in fact, it tells us that authority comes from God. That in the family, the husband is the head and the wife serves alongside of him and that the, the children are to obey the parents. There's authority structure there. We see an authority structure woven into the fabric of the universe as our creator God, the triune God, is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. 
and that the son submits himself to the father. That there is structure built into the fabric of the universe. So there are these authority structures. They've been instituted by God. All authority belongs to him and comes from him. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now, verse 3, he tells us what God has established the government to do. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who, has, who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. That word servant is literally the word deacon. That the government officials are to be God's deacons, representing him, serving him. Verse 4, still, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. God has given the state the authority to enact justice all the way up to even capital punishment. He has the authority to, to bear the sword from God. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, because of this, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. We need to fund their ministry. Attending to this very thing, pay all to what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes is owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to, his, to whom honor is owed. Now the state, it tells us clearly, is tasked with the responsibility of dispensing with justice, even to the point of bearing the sword. And to do what? What are they to do? They are to punish those who do evil and reward those who do good. That's what it says here. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will see, receive approval. For he is God's servant. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he doesn't bear the sword in vain. It is the state's job under God to reward good and to punish evil, to dispense with justice. Now, this raises for us a very important question. What is justice? Whose justice are, is the state to enforce? Justice by what standard? By what standard? Where does the standard of justice come from? It only comes from two options. It only comes from up above, from heaven, comes down from God to us through revelation, God's standard of justice, which flows from his nature and his character. Or we have man's standard of justice, which flow from man's nature and character, which the Bible tells us is evil, is sinful, is broken, is corrupt, is beyond even comprehension. The thoughts of man are only evil continually, so man's standard of justice is corrupt, is evil, 
These are the only two options. You only have justice according to God's word or you have justice according to man's word. God's standard of justice is revelation. It is unchanging. It is perfect because God is unchanging and perfect. Man's standard of justice is not revelation. It is speculation and it is always changing. It is always changing. What is right today is wrong tomorrow by public opinion. That's why Dr. Seuss is being canceled. Because man's standard of justice is all over the place. It changes. It changes by the day. It changes by the hour sometimes. It's hard to keep up with what is taboo today and what is not. The unthinkable is thinkable and the thinkable is unthinkable today. It's always changing. And it is evil by definition because it is not God's law. It is not God's standard. Because it is not good and righteous by definition, it is evil. Even as it sets itself up apart from God. So, if a nation rejects God's governing through his law, he must, it must, God must be replaced. So if we will not submit to God and his law, we have to submit to something as the ultimate authority. And so the only other option is humanism. And that's the state being, uh, uh, the, the powers of God being divulged to the state. The state taking God's power and God's ultimate authority, which results in either anarchy or totalitarianism. So where do we get our definition for good and evil? How do we know what is good and what is evil? Where do we find this information? Well, it's in God's word. It's actually written in black and white. Flip back a couple pages to Romans chapter 3. Couple verses in Romans 3. Romans 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable. To God. The whole world is accountable to God. Not just to themselves as the ultimate and sovereign. Verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now we're not saved by keeping the law of God. We're not justified by the law of God, but God's law is the righteous standard for humanity. As lawbreakers, we need someone to atone for our sin, and we have that in Christ. But just because we have received grace, it doesn't mean we throw away the law. In fact, Paul will write later in Romans 3, Romans 3.31, the very end, do we overthrow this law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And he'll write later that love is the fulfillment of the law. So just because we are under grace doesn't mean that we are free of the moral obligations of the law of God. And the law of God stands, the moral law of God. Now, without the law of God, we're not able to know right from wrong in an objective way. Without the law of God, how do we differentiate justice from injustice? Without the law of God, how do we differentiate good from evil? 
Therefore, the state must be under God's law. Or it is blasphemous because it's asserting its own divinity as God. It's asserting itself as its own ultimate authority, which our government and state has been doing in this area of of abortion for the last 50 years. Every nation is accountable to God and is to be ruled by God's law because God is king of the nations. And the nations are to dispense with justice, calling what is evil, evil, and what is good, good, and rewarding what is good and punishing what is evil. So that was my third point the responsibilities of the state. It's not the church's job to dispense with justice. That's not our job. We do, the church does not bear the sword. Where the church has gotten into big trouble throughout history is when the church gets mixed up with government and tries to bear the sword. We do not bear the sword. The government bears the sword, and it's their job to uphold justice. Now, that leads us to the question of what happens if a nation will not uphold justice? That brings us to point number four. Any nation that disobeys God will come under his judgment. Any nation that does not obey God, that disobeys God's law, will come under his righteous judgment. Abraham asks God in Genesis, he asks him this question, Will the judge of all the earth do what is just? Will the judge of all the earth do what is just? The answer is yes, of course. It's a resounding yes. And so if a nation will not submit to God, the the, the cry of the Christian is, will the judge of all the earth not do what is just? Will, Will God ignore the bloodshed? Will God ignore the extinguished lives of 62 million babies? Will God ignore the oppression of the weak? Will God ignore the, the, the billions of souls that have been lost? Will the judge of all the earth not do what is just? Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put light for darkness and darkness for light, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We live in a world today that calls good evil and evil good. And God says to you, Woe! You you are coming under my judgment. Proverbs 17, 15 says, acquitting the guilty, letting the guilty go free, and condemning the righteous, both are detestable to the Lord. Both are detestable to the Lord. If you flip back with me to Romans 1, we're going to look at what God does to the nation's who will not submit to his law. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Verse 18, starting Romans 1, 18. God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How has God revealed his truth? Well, in general revelation through creation. 
Verse 20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. It's not a shock that there's a God. It's not a shock that there's a creator. It is clear. In the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Who is without excuse? The unrighteous who do not submit to God and his law. For though they knew God, as image bearers of God, we all know God. Now, we don't know about him uh, necessarily uh, in, in particular redemption and about his son and savior, Messiah. We don't know about that without the gospel message being preached and proclaimed to us. But through general revelation, we all know the God of creation. And this is what he's talking about. For although they, unrighteous mankind, did not honor God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. When you turn away from God, your brain begins to malfunction. Your thoughts are not clear and accurate. Their foolish hearts were darkened. There's darkness that begins to come in and cloud your thinking. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. That should be plastered over every university in our country. That that is the model. That is what they are doing. They deny God. They deny the creator. And they think they are so smart. But in fact, they're futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts are darkened. They think they are wise, but they are fools. The Bible declares the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. Verse 23. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We are created to worship. As image bearers of God, we are a worshiping people. If we will not worship the creator, we worship the creation. It might not be in, in literal idols and literal statues, but what we saw this last two days is a group of people who lost their mind because their God lost in the courts. They worship the state as God, which is self-worship. It's man-worship. So if you will not worship God, you will set up idols resembling mortal man. You will worship the creation if you don't worship the creator. Now, what does God do in response to this? Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so, so what, the first thing that goes is rejection of God, rejection of him. In comes feudal thinking, in comes darkness, worshiping of the creation instead of the creator. And then God hardens their heart and then comes, in comes impurity. We saw this in the 60s, in the 70s, in the sexual revolution. This is what comes after you get rid of God, which happened in the 50s. We kick God out of all of our institutions. Foolish hearts become darkened. Next comes impurity. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God, what God is acting. He is active in this. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. After the sexual revolution comes a homosexual revolution. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to, de- to a debased mind to do what they ought not to do what ought not be done. That's the the transgender movement now, mutilating children. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree, they know God's decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. The wages of sin is death. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is what happens when a nation does not worship God. And I would submit to you that every nation, including ours, their laws should reflect God's law. Our standard of justice should be God's standard of justice because it is the job of the state to punish evil and reward good. Evil doers should be held accountable for their crimes. Which the the Christian will respond, well, what about grace? Don't we believe in grace? Yes, I believe in grace. A hundred percent, I believe in the grace of God. If someone will repent of their sin and trust of Christ, no matter what you have done, you will receive grace. Amen. Grace and mercy from the throne of God as ministered through the church. But you are still accountable for your actions unto the state. Yes, you will receive grace and mercy 100% from the throne. But the state's job is not to dispense grace. That's God's job. The state's job is to administer justice, to reward good and punish evil. And Proverbs 24, 34 tells us that righteousness exalts a nation but that sin is a reproach to any people. And Psalm 33, 12 tells us, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The law of God is written into the fabric of the universe. You cannot escape it. Yes, even the universe was brought into being, was brought into existence through the word of God. The Logos is the creator. Christ is the creator. The word became flesh, is the one who brought the universe into existence. You can no more defy God's moral law and receive his blessing than you could drop a rock into the Grand Canyon and watch it float away. The the moral law of God is stronger than even the law of gravity. And the nation that will submit to the moral law of God will find itself living in the blessing of God. The nation that rebels will find itself living under the judgment of God. And we, hear me, we are a nation that is under the judgment of God. Look at Romans 1. We are being judged for our sin. We are being judged for our iniquity. And the judgment of God is to bring the people to repentance. To bring them back to him. Now, this idea of imposing our beliefs. We are not imposing our beliefs. These are not our beliefs. These are God's laws. It's not your beliefs. You didn't come up with this. 
You didn't sit down and say, uh, commandment six, thou shalt not murder. Yeah. This is God's law. And over the weekend, no one has imposed any beliefs on anyone. Why do I say that? Because no one is forced to believe anything. No one is forced to believe anything by this ruling that came down. As image bearers of God, we all have freedom of belief and freedom of conscience. And so even those who uh, uh, believe that abortion is okay, no one's forcing them to believe otherwise. There's no gun to anybody's head saying, you have to believe this. Do you understand that? We're not forcing people to believe anything. No one's beliefs have been imposed upon anyone. We have freedom of belief. We have freedom of conscience. But what we do not have and have never had is freedom of action. And that is what the abortionist is crying out for. Autonomy. Freedom of action. But humanity has never had freedom of action. From creation itself, God said to Adam and Eve, Do not eat of this tree. Be fruitful and multiply. From the very creation of the world, humanity has lived under the law of God. We do not have freedom of action. Adam and Eve sinned, violating the law of God. Cain sins, murdering his own brother. It's interesting to me that the first time anybody dies, it's at the hand of another human being. Death did not come into the world through God, but it came in through the world through sin and humans shedding their own blood. God comes to Cain and says, what have you done? Where is your brother? He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He tells Cain, the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. When God brought the children of Israel into uh, uh, the land of Canaan and removed the nations that were there, he did so as an act of judgment because of their child sacrifice to the god Molech. He specifically says, I am giving you this land because of their wickedness and their iniquity and they polluted the ground with the blood of their children. And so God brought judgment on those wicked nations through his people, Israel. That's why he gave them that land. Later on, as Israel becomes polluted just like the nations of Canaan, God brings another nation to remove Israel from the land. If a nation does not submit to the law of God, it will come under the judgment of God. He is the only sovereign. He is the only sovereign. People have been lied to. People have been deceived. The great slogan is, my body, my choice. It's not your body. It's God's. We all belong to God. Whether we believe it or not, we belong to him. It's his body. He is our creator. He is the only sovereign. He is the only one who is autonomous. And all of us, whether we believe it or not, are under God and his law. So the nation that will not obey God will come under his judgment. And then finally, number five, as Christians, as believers, we are obligated to obey God rather than men. 
In Acts chapter 5, the apostles are called before their governing authorities. And they're strictly warned, you may not preach the gospel anymore. You may not mention the name of Jesus. And Peter looks at them and he says, we must obey God rather than men. Amen. And so when a nation does, when, when a nation's laws are in violation of God's law, we obey God's law because there's a higher rule of authority. When Moses' parents were instructed by Pharaoh to murder their baby, they disobeyed the king's orders. And they did so as an act of faith in God. In Hebrews 11, they are commended for their faith. It was the Scottish reformer John Knox who said this, resistance to tyranny is obedience unto God. There is a higher law than the state's law. It is God's law. And so when the state declares that they can redefine marriage, which God declares is between a man and a woman, the church says, the believers say, sorry, marriage is between a man and a woman. When the state endorses and pays for the slaughter of the unborn, the church says, we resist. We do not submit to that law. When schools try to indoctrinate our children in LGBT propaganda, we pull our kids out of those schools. Because as parents, yeah, amen. As parents, we are responsible to God for the rearing of our children. We must make the sacrifices that are necessary When the White House says that mutilating, mutilating the genitalia of children is an, an affirming and necessary medical treatment that, says li that saves lives, we resist. But they're doctors. They have degrees. They have 100 degrees of stupid. <laughs> Listen, it was doctors who tortured and experimented on the Jews in Auschwitz. And what they're doing to kids today with these puberty blockers and surgeries is no different. It's evil. It's evil. Well, they're experts. Not, not according to this. Not according to this. This is, this is the beginning and the end of the debate, of every debate. So for us, a Christian ethic, our relationship to the state, as a general rule, as a general rule, we will submit to the state as deacons appointed by God who are tasked with upholding justice, rewarding good, and punishing evil. However, when one must choose between obeying the state and obeying God, we must obey God. We will not violate God's law or God's word or the inner witness of the Holy Spirit through our conscience. God-fearing Christians should speak up for the truth at every opportunity under the leading and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We should speak up for the truth. We, should be the, we, we are called to be God's witnesses. We're tasked with the preaching and proclaiming of the gospel 
and teaching the nations to obey the word of God. That's the job of the church. That's the job of God's people. And so we must give voice to the truth where we have the opportunity to do so. We see John the Baptist doing this when he went and rebuked King Herod for his unlawful marriage. Of course, John's head ended up being served up at the buffet table later that day. There's a price to pay for proclaiming the truth. Don't think it doesn't come without a price. The Apostle Paul called every magistrate and every governor that he stood before in the book of Acts to repentance and faith in Christ. Five times in the book of Acts, he stands before leaders. He stands before governors. He stands before kings. And you know what his message to them is? There's a king above you. His name is Jesus Christ. And he calls on them to repent of their sin and to trust in Christ and to exercise their governing power under the rule of Christ. That's the example of the apostles. And as the church, who is tasked with the Great Commission, teaching the nations to obey the law of God, we call upon the state to administer justice, true justice, according to the word of God. It is the church's job not to dispense with justice, but to be a prophetic voice to the state to do its job correctly. We don't do the state's job, but we call on the state to do its job as God's deacon. That is the church's role in the world. And so whether you live in Texas or communist China, where we have opportunity to speak to governing officials, to make our voice heard, we don't proclaim our word and our beliefs. We proclaim God's word and call on the state to submit to Christ. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Proverbs 3.27, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. So as citizens of this country, we have a unique freedom and privilege to participate in the government of the state. And so if we are going to speak up for truth, we as Christians should make our voices heard through voting according to God's law and God's word. And so we should vote for candidates that align with the word of God. Those who are against the murder of the unborn, the desecration of marriage, indoctrinating children in sexual perversion in schools. I, I, I read a news story the other day. I think it was New Jersey. New Jersey State where one of the elected officials said... We're going to put a drag queen in every school. It's madness. As led by the Holy Spirit, God-fearing Christians should seek positions of authority. I said, as led by the Holy Spirit, as led by the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit calls you and leads you, 
We should seek positions. We should seek platforms. Not to proclaim our word, but to proclaim God's word. Positions of authority from local school boards to city and state positions to the federal government. And we must do so without compromising our morals by lying or accepting bribes or, under, or other unethical means that violate God's word. And finally, God's people need to step up to the current challenge that is in front of us. There is a, a child crisis. And God's people should prayerfully consider adoption. God's people should prayerfully consider foster care. God's people should, should step up and be a part of the answer to this problem. Supporting, amen. Supporting these pregnancy crisis ministries and centers. Financially supporting them. Volunteering where we can. I really believe that the church should lead the way. Church should lead the way. So here's the bottom line. Does Jesus, the king of the universe and the king of the nations, does he want babies to be aborted? No. Then we as Christians should work to see his will done in our nation. Because Jesus is the king of our nation. And to those who object, to those who have believed the lie of autonomy, we must share with them and proclaim to them the greatest news the world has ever heard. Proclaim the gospel of grace, the bloody cross, the empty tomb, and the risen king. The work of the kingdom is not done. It's just barely getting started. It's not time to take a victory lap. It's time to put our shoulder to the plow in evangelism and in discipleship. It's time for families to double down on discipling their kids, on turning off the TV that's indoctrinating their kids in the propaganda of the world. It's time to get... It's time to get serious about family worship, about family devotions, about putting our kids in schools that teach them the truth. It's, it's, it's time to be serious about evangelizing our neighbors and pointing them to Christ, pointing them to the truth, pointing them to the gospel. It's because the laws of the land, while they need to uphold justice and God's justice, the law does not convert anyone. It is only the gospel that changes hearts. Laws don't change hearts. And unless the hearts of mankind are changed, the, 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 the downward trajectory and the downward spiral of our nation is only going to continue. Unless the hearts are changed. And the hearts are only changed through the gospel. And it's the church's job to get the gospel out. It's the church's job to preach and proclaim the truth. It's the church's job to pray that God would have mercy upon us and that where sin abounds, grace would abound all the more and that God would help all of us to become mouthpieces of grace and truth, that we would all become 
that we would not be ashamed of the gospel. And that when we have opportunities, we would take them. And that we would stand for what is right, no matter what the cost is. And even being willing to lay down our own lives for the sake of the gospel. The reason why things have gotten so bad in our nation is because Christians have, be, have been, we, we made a deal with the devil to be comfortable. And he said, you don't come on my turf and I won't come on your turf. And we said, fine, sounds like a good deal. And we retreated from society because we wanted to be comfortable. We wanted to have our, our American dream the culture, the, our world, our nation has gone to hell because of it. Because we gave away ground that belongs to Christ. We didn't realize that it all belongs to him. And that the church is to be a prophetic voice calling upon the state to submit to Christ. And so we all need to repent for our idolatry of our American dream, for our idolatry of having it easy. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus said, unless you are willing to die, you cannot live. We must die to ourselves every day. Every day we wake up, we're missionaries every day. We are missionaries entrusted with the gospel. We must not be content to watch a world be swept up in the flood and not be like Noah, a preacher of righteousness. The Bible says that Noah preached while he built the ark. And we're all just huddled up in the ark waiting for the flood. We, no, we need, until the flood comes, we need to get out there and get as many people as we can. It's not right to be comfortable and to not use the blessing of God for the blessing of others. We have been blessed by God beyond measure, beyond what we deserve. Not so that we could just live lavishly and live high on the hog, whatever that means. I don't even know what that means. But that we might expand the kingdom. That the nations, that the nations, what Christ died for to redeem the nations, will he not have his inheritance? Will Christ not have what he died for? He has tasked us, his people, with the job of taking his message to the nations and he has promised that when we do that we go forward not in our power and our strength but in the power of his spirit let's pray father we thank you for your word god convict our hearts lord give us wisdom lord as we interact with our family our friends our co-workers our neighbors let us be salt let us be light Lord, let us not be condemning, 
but let us be graceful. Pointing towards you, pointing towards the cross, pointing towards the forgiveness of sin that we all need. Lord, help us not to become self-righteous. Let us, let us stay broken and humbled. Humbled that our king would come and die to redeem us. And let us not be ashamed of this good news, this glorious news. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.